Okay, here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. We will try this again. So welcome again. Um, as I said, we are going to have a few COVID-19 updates for you today. Uh, but we do have this full schedule that is devoted to looking at the success stories that um, we have produced here at the Institute uh, over these last few months. So be sure to keep your audio muted. Uh, use the chat function if you do want to ask a question. We are going to try to get to as many questions as we possibly can. And uh, you can send them to me privately or post them publicly. Um, and a recording of this session will be made uh, and will be posted to our coronavirus website. So we'll get right into things. Tim, um, we have made some changes and some updates to our guidelines. Will you highlight some of those changes for everyone? Yeah, I sure will. Uh, thanks, Lisa, and good afternoon, everyone. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, you know, for those of you that, that do something on a weekly basis, uh, it seems like once a week comes about every day, doesn't it? And uh, here we are again on a Friday already, but, uh, but it's, it's actually something I look forward to because we get a chance to interact and uh, it gives me a good, uh, good feel for what's going on around the state uh, and to hear some of your feedback, your questions. So uh, thanks for joining us once again and look forward to uh, today's program. And, and as I alluded to uh, earlier, the good news is you're not going to have to hear quite so much from me today because you're going to be able to hear from your coworkers uh, from across the Institute. So I want to get right to that. Meantime, though, let me make you aware that we have made a couple of changes in our coronavirus uh, guidelines. And largely those changes are, are to bring us into line with uh, what uh, the university uh, has, has done and with what the state of Tennessee has done as well. It's, you know, early on, we were all making up our, our own practices and guidelines because there wasn't anything there. We've seen, a, I think, a real uh, strong gravitation towards a common set of guidelines now with CDC certainly setting uh, at the federal level uh, a basis for what we do and then the state of Tennessee also having an extensive set of guidance now as well. So uh, the two areas that we've made changes, one is in travel and we've certainly continued to uh, allow in-state travel, encouraging, of course, uh, that we follow as many health and safety practices as possible, limiting the number of individuals in cars, uh, wiping down cars, uh, uh, you know, uh, being careful about where we go, where we stop, uh, lodging, and so forth. So that's been going on for a while. We have, have been uh, restricting domestic uh, out-of-state travel uh, and requiring an exception uh, in order to uh, conduct out-of-state travel. Uh, I think this time uh, the University of Tennessee system, the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, and the state of Tennessee are all at a point of allowing domestic travel. Uh, and so we uh, also are going to uh, begin to allow domestic travel, uh, but uh, we want to emphasize that it should still be only essential travel and in you must uh, submit an out-of-state travel approval ahead of the out-of-state travel in order to get reimbursed. So that's always been actually a, a policy uh, that, that you're to get approval in advance. I know sometimes we get busy, we forget, or uh, approval doesn't get done, and, and uh, lo and behold, the travel happens, uh, and we did not have that approval. But let's be absolutely sure if, if we're going to submit uh, uh, travel, that we get it done ahead of time. Make sure you and your supervisor have a conversation about that travel. 
uh, be sure it's essential. Uh, and our, our document has a, a few words about what is essential in there. Uh, and if that's the case, then uh, we're, we're going to allow that to, to proceed uh, with the regular approvals uh, in workflow. So that's uh, one change. A second change related to travel is that if we're going to say, okay, uh, domestic travel is allowed, then the question is, what about return from out-of-state travel? And we've been very restrictive uh, since uh, mid-March and said, basically, if you're going to travel out of state, you then have to return and spend two weeks in self-quarantine uh, with no exceptions. And we've been pretty rigid on that. I've had many, many cases brought to me, uh, sent to me about individuals who traveled to see family. They drove four or five hours out of state. They stayed with a family member uh, for three days. They, you know, didn't run around uh, going to amusement parks and, uh, and other venues. Uh, they were very safe throughout their time period. But when they returned, we made them, you know, work remotely for two weeks. Uh, and, you know, as I've thought about those situations, I, I find it hard to, to really justify why that's required when someone could uh, travel to some other part of Tennessee just as far away uh, and perhaps not uh, even under the as safe of circumstances, and yet they can come straight back to the workplace. So, we're going to uh, suspend the requirement of a mandatory self-quarantine period, but we're gonna ask that if you travel out of state, whether it's personal or university related, that you discuss that with your supervisor and determine the best approach uh, upon your return. And we've uh, outlined again uh, some questions uh, to guide a discussion between you and your supervisor. There's no, there's no way we can write enough rules to uh, to provide a foolproof method for identifying when self-quarantine is necessary or when it's not necessarily. It just depends on so many different circumstances. But what we've tried to do is encourage you and your supervisor to have a conversation, to think about how you traveled, where you traveled, how you spent your time, uh, and then determine what's the safest way uh, for you and for your coworkers upon your return. I, I know there'll be a lot of questions about this. Uh, and so if, if you and your supervisor can't come to a, a mutually agreed upon plan, then I would say, you know, next step is either contact your dean's office, uh, another supervisor in the chain, or contact someone in human resources. We'll help you uh, uh, create a plan and, and we'll figure out what, what makes sense. So in lifting these restrictions, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, good grief, I think Tennessee's just had two of the highest days of positive cases on record, and here we are, you know, uh, lessening some restrictions. We, we don't necessarily want to back away from health and safety. I think what, what I'm seeing this as is a recognition that every case is unique. Uh, every, every travel instance really is unique. And it's so darn hard to write one set of rules that fits every single situation. So we're trying to allow really some, some common sense, some logic, uh, and some uh, professionalism to come to bear and, and make these decisions individually uh, as best we can. So I know there may well be some questions about that. We'll, we'll get to those later on if there are. Uh, and as, as uh, Lisa mentioned, uh, those guidelines have already been updated. They're posted. So you can uh, go look at that in just a little more detail uh, later on. And then the other change we've made uh, is re with regard to group meetings. We had uh, initially in mid-March identified uh, that group meetings would be 
restricted to no more than 10 individuals uh, through July 31st. But within the last couple of weeks, uh, the state of Tennessee has increased that to group meetings of 50 are now allowed. The University of Tennessee, Knoxville has increased that to allowing group meetings of 50. And, and we felt like it was time for us to uh, get in line again with that uh, standard. All those group meetings still need to uh, follow CDC guidance and state of Tennessee guidance. So we've changed our guidelines to indicate that and we've included uh, links to both of those sets of guidelines. So it won't be easy uh, to do these meetings and, and it may not be possible to do them depending upon uh, the venue that, that uh, might be under consideration. And then finally, let me emphasize, we're not saying go out and do these. We're saying if there's a real need, if there's a, 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 a critical uh, essential educational need or some organizational need for these, they are permitted. But this should not be interpreted that everybody goes out and does a group meeting with 50 people tomorrow. This is simply to allow for those plans to start to be made uh, in the coming weeks and months. So. Uh, those are, that's the other change uh, that we've made to the guidelines. And again, I think both of these really uh, tend to align our guidance much more closely with, uh, with uh, CDC guidance and with state guidance as well, uh, as, and, and with the University of Tennessee too. So those are the changes, Lisa. So Tim, um, we're probably sounding like a broken record here, but you did just say that uh, cases are indeed going up um, across the state. We certainly saw that report just here in the last few minutes here in Knox County. So how important is it that we continue to really um, adhere to safety practices? Well, it's you know certainly as important, if not more important now than it was uh, a month or two ago. You know, a month or two ago, most of us were at home across the whole state. Now as the state's reopening, it's probably even more important that we practice good hygiene, that we wear our face mask out in public, uh, that we uh, keep physically distance, uh, distant from folks. I heard, uh, heard a conversation uh, that was actually quoted in the newspaper as well, uh, involving athletic director uh, Phil Fulmer. Someone asked him, are we gonna play football this fall or not? And uh, Coach Fulmer's response was, well, you know, if you want to come and see a football game, you better start washing your hands. You better be wearing a mask in public. You better stay away from people because if we don't all do that, it, it's gonna be very challenging uh, to have the ability to go to a football game or the ability to send our children to school or the ability to go out to eat at a restaurant. So we've all got to do our part. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're all gonna pay a price if you think about it. Uh, so it's still important uh, to follow those guidelines. I know you're tired of hearing about it, uh, but uh, it's what we need to do. It's, it's our obligation to one another. So just a reminder, uh, we all, we're all in this together. Uh, do, follow those practices, not for yourself, but for those uh, in your family, for those you work with, for those in your community. Great. Well, we have certainly, uh, over these last few months, had some excellent guests here on our Fireside Chats, but we decided today to make the decision to shine the spotlight on some of our very own. And so, Tim, will you explain? I will. You know, I, I have the, the privilege uh, from my role here of seeing great uh, programs, great successes, great impacts from throughout our institute, but most of you don't because you're in one or other one or another unit and uh, I just felt like it was time that we spent a little time 
really recognizing each other. And while this won't be a comprehensive set of uh, uh, presentations that we'll have today, uh, I thought it might be helpful for you to, to know that we recognize the great work you're doing. Uh, we're gonna highlight a few today, but uh, we could, we could uh, schedule a session like this every hour for the next uh, week or two and still have uh, plenty of content that we wouldn't get to. But uh, this is just a chance to reflect a little bit on the great work that's being done and for you to hear it from the people that are actually doing the work. So with that in mind, better look at my notes here every now and then. <laughs> We're gonna start with uh, UT Extension. Uh, really pleased to introduce uh, very briefly, uh, Dr. Scott Sensiman. He's our interim dean for UT Extension today. He's leading uh, extension programs and, and our extension staff has been doing a bang up job across the state. He's gonna share uh, a few examples and invite a few to help him uh, in that regard as well. So Scott, uh, please let us know what's been going on in UT Extension. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Cross. And, uh, you know, I think we could pull out maybe a couple of dozen different really good stories of, of the things that have been going on through extension for, for our staff and specialists and agents going out and doing the various things that they do to help Tennesseans. But uh, I got four people here today that are going to talk a little bit about some specific things that they've been doing. And we'll also show a video uh, about the masks of love that have been uh, really impactful for the state but about uh, 30 new extension publications in response to COVID-19 on various subjects uh, have been uh, available to us in the last several months. And those include things related to social distancing, gardening, mental health, and even hiring farm workers. I believe the list of publications might be showing up in a chat box here, but it's on the extension website, extension.tennessee.edu from a publication standpoint. Um, there are several people here I'll introduce to you. I'll start off with Dr. Lisa Washburn from Family and Consumer Sciences and member of the ETIA Coronavirus Task Force. She's author of extension publications on COVID-19 safety measures. Lisa, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Sure, thanks for the opportunity. Um, March and April seemed like a lifetime ago, um, but that's when we developed our early publications about coronavirus. Um, I think even before they started calling it COVID-19, we had um, a publication out about um, coronavirus disease and how you could avoid that and keep yourself safe. We also developed a publication on social distancing and some really basic pieces early on to help people answer questions um, about what the risk was. Things have evolved a lot since that time. Um, and so now we're looking at, do we need publications about how to properly wear a mask? And even though CDC has really great information on their website, sometimes it's hard to comb through the volume of information to distill what's important, um, particularly for our clientele. So what we've been trying to do is to really boil down what the important points are so that we can communicate really clearly with people in Tennessee about their risk. Um, one of the things I was supposed to address was how this was transformational. Um, and I think that the biggest takeaway for me is that the university system may be known for being sluggish and slow, but we can turn around a publication like nobody's business. We got it done within a week or less. Thanks very much, Lisa, and really appreciate your efforts. 
Uh, another group that's been doing some work has been our uh, family consumer science financial specialist and Dr. Chris Need and, and Dr. Ann Barry have been working on some issues related to navigating credit issues during the pandemic. And I believe Chris is here today to talk to us a little bit about that. Chris? Thank you so much. It's great to be with you all. Um, the consumer economics team consisting of myself, Dr. Barry, Barb Metzger, Marcy Hefman, and then our extension agents out across the state who are part of our leadership team have really stepped up during this time of COVID-19 and the associated economic downturn. In fact, we have produced 16 extension publications uh, since March on a variety of financial management topics, including credit. One of the things that we're really proud of is we've also produced a series of nine videos that we call the Money Minute. And the Money Minute was um, a video that featured a small piece of research-based information, uh, some additional tips, and then a call to action. And this was really transformational for us because we were doing videos with folks all across the state. Some of my colleagues know I'm not very techy at times, but we certainly figured out how to make this work and make it work with our network across the state. About halfway through the video launch, about video four, we wanted to see, are these videos really making a difference? Is anybody actually watching what we've done? And come to find out, we've had over 2,000 views on Facebook alone of our videos. Clearly, these videos have worked to drive traffic and increase traffic across all of our FCS social media platforms, including Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube. It really is a new day and a new way of working for some of us in Extension. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, really appreciate what you're doing as well. And then we have a uh, Department of Plant Sciences faculty member. I used to know where that was. Uh, Dr. Baumgartner, I appreciate all the things you're doing from a gardening video series. Would you like to tell the group a little bit about what you're working on? Sure, absolutely. So this is just a little bit of a snapshot of some of the things that have been going on over the past few months with our Master Gardener program and our Consumer Horticulture program. And so when March and a lack of public meetings hit with a volunteer program, that was a big deal. We were in the middle of training, and so we pivoted quickly and did a lot of our intern training completion via video. That went well, um, and we're even now in the, in the process of kind of figuring out how we take some of those things and then maybe hybridize and use some of those techniques moving forward. But of course, as you know, March turned into April, it became clear that this was gonna be a whole different kind of a year. And between quarantine gardening and victory gardening, you know, the interest in our horticulture area just spiked. We're still all overwhelmed with emails. And so we started doing statewide Zooms. And these were collaborative efforts I, I would run out of time if I tried to mention all of the agents and specialists who were involved. And so we, during the month of April, we did two a week, uh, both on Tuesday and Friday. And that was, that was a ton of fun, but it was also a lot of work. But it gave us an opportunity to spotlight people all across the state, mo most of us for the month of April, in our backyards, talking about horticulture. And we would have, you know, anywhere from 150 to up to like 230 people join in live, which is about as many people as you want to manage their mics at the same time. And then, you know, we'd be able to put those on YouTube and have hundreds of people watching them. So it's been a really great opportunity to spotlight our fabulous people across the state and keep both our current volunteers, but also new gardeners engaged. And, uh, and so you knew that I might share a little bit of data, but this is my favorite uh, poll that I took at the end 
of April when we were closing up one of the series, I asked everybody in the meeting just a little bit about how do you feel about distance technology? 47% said, you know, it's getting us through this time all right. 53% said, honestly, if y'all keep this up, then I may just never leave the house again. Obviously, those are um, some, uh, <laughs> some, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek, you know, fun questions in a poll. But, um, but I think that it's explaining the fact that we've really kind of uncovered some methods that, yeah, we're going to look forward to seeing each other in person. But we're also going to take these techniques forward. And so the final thing that I wanted to mention is that this has kind of been synergistic with our county program. So as we get our volunteers and our new audiences engaged with digital technology for statewide meetings, it becomes easier for county programs to also hold digital meetings and, and vice versa, right? If the county agents get their volunteers better at Zoom, then they're going to turn into statewide meetings. And so I think it's really kind of connected our programs and brought them together because we now have this unique tool that everybody's getting better at, uh, at using. And so I'm excited about opportunities for new audiences and the opportunity to kind of carry these things forward. And you'll hear next from, you know, there's no better person in our system to tell you how this has been working in the local level. So thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Dr. Bumgarner. And hopefully we get one of these videos with a Tom Samples bobblehead in it. If we get that, I think we'll sell out <laughs> extremely well. Uh, well, Dr. Chris Cooper is our UT Extension agent in, in Shelby County. And uh, the only thing better that he might be able to do today to tell us about urban uh, communities and community gardens is to be at a piano while he does it. I don't know, Chris, are you out there? I'm here. It would be nice to have a piano. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I represented UT Extension at a ribbon cutting ceremony at the Shelby County Community Gardens back in May. Uh, mayor Harris, our county mayor, was looking to reestablish uh, the community garden program, which allows the residents the opportunity to grow their own fruits, vegetables, and flowers for free. Uh, we wanted to help promote a culture of healthy living, staying active, while at the same time enjoying the county's green space. Uh, there are about 400 total plots, and they are all claimed. Uh, those plots are 25 feet wide and 100 feet long. A uh, hundred new gardeners got plots this year. Let me say that again. A hundred new gardeners got plots this year. We, Shelby County Extension Office, are working with Rachel Gray, uh, program manager of parks and grounds to establish programmings for those gardeners. Uh, many of the produce is given to the local food banks, uh, senior citizens, and those in need. And finally, folks, COVID-19 has given many people an incentive to try gardening. Uh, there's a great desire to get outdoors, to enjoy our natural environment, and to work in our gardens. Thank you for the opportunity again. Thanks very much, Dr. Cooper, and thank all of you who've uh, presented today. It's some really great stuff. We'll, we'll end up with a, a video, and uh, just to tell you a little bit about what's going on with this video, uh, there is a, a sewing mask for at-risk populations, first responders, and medical personnel that began as a local extension service outreach project under the guidance of Dr. April Martin in DeKalb County and Shelley Barnes in Wilson County. This effort has grown to a statewide effort involving 49 of our 95 counties where volunteers contributed over 21,000 hours to produce over 22,000 masks. 
the value of this volunteer's time is, is over half a million dollars. So with more than uh, 850 members on the Tennessee Association of Family and Community Education Massive Love Volunteers Facebook group, uh, they have fostered a tremendous amount of camaraderie engagement across the state. They've had more than 500 posts, uh, 2,600 comments, and nearly 11,000 reactions in just a nine-week period. So with that, uh, again, thanks everyone and extension that's presented today. And Mike, we'll be ready to go ahead and hit the button on Masks of Love. Kindness that gains momentum with every stitch. Mask makers across Tennessee, more than 500 volunteers sewing stylish and practical face coverings to protect people during the COVID crisis. 4-H'er Trinity Nash has made more than 650 masks herself. She and her mom saw the idea on Facebook. Uh, there was a great need for masks um, around my area. Mm -hmm. So she asked me to make some and I said, of course I said yes, thinking, oh, I'm only gonna have to make a few. Yeah, I'm still going on today. Making County 4-H is very proud of Trinity for all of her hard work and dedication to this project. It's very inspiring. This project is called Mask of Love, organized by UT Extension and the Tennessee Association of Family and Community Education Clubs. This is what FCE means to me, working with the community. 4-H youth are also involved. Several of us Zoom to talk about it. The movement started on Facebook and shows how fast something can spread on social media. And the response has been very amazing. Um, we see people sharing it. We see people talking about it. I'm able to search in Facebook to see all of the different posts. And I think it's just a great way to reach a, a large number of people quickly. My daughter, Meredith Denny, works at Vanderbilt Medical Center. She made this mask for me, school colors. It's impossible to count the number of masks made by these FCE or 4-H volunteers, but it's safe to say it's in the thousands. Some sewing pros can produce a mask in just minutes. Organizer April Martin from DeKalb County says it's an easy way to help. I don't know if I'd call it a beginner sewing project. It's almost a beginner sewing project until you get to the plates, the plate part of it, or at least my pattern. Um, but it just involves a, a nine, basically a nine by six uh, rectangle square. The effort is appreciated. Gianna Owens is a nurse practitioner in DeKalb County and has family in Italy impacted by COVID. It's just um, an amazing feeling of knowing that um, I have a whole community behind my back protecting me and praying for me. So while we're staying apart, mask making is a great way to come together. With thread, needle, and machine, we can all be a little safer. Keep safe, keep sewing, we're all in this together. This is Charles Denny reporting. Well, good wrap up uh, to our extension uh, highlights uh, for today. And I think you start to get an appreciation for what I shared earlier. And that is that I get a chance to see some really good things from, from all parts of our organization. And speaking of other parts of our organization, next, uh, let's hear a little bit from Dr. Kala Beal. And here are some examples of what's been going on uh, in the Herbert College of Agriculture. Thank you, Dr. Cross. I think when uh, January hit and the spring semester started, we have, had no idea of the challenges that 
we were going to be facing. And then when spring break occurred and students were sent home and all the instructors of the Herbert College were told that, you know what, we are going online, 100% online. And I think everybody took a very collective big breath and decided, yes, we can do this. And I'm tremendously proud that every one of our instructors made that transition successfully. And I'm not saying that that's their preferred method of delivery because, you know, we really value the hands-on component. And I think almost all of us would like to return to that face-to-face -face instruction that was the pre-COVID norm. But they made that transition successfully and not only did our instructors make the transition successfully, but many of our students had never experienced the online environment either. And they persisted. And I tell you what, I think the Herbert College of Agriculture students are the best examples of the kind of resilience and leadership we want in the future because they have grit. All right, they persisted. And it, at the end of the semester, we had 200 undergraduates 28 uh, master's students and five PhD students graduate. And you know, without that traditional commencement ceremony, we were unable to really celebrate in person. And, and I really miss the, the family hugs because I'm, I'm a hugger and I really enjoy sharing that joy with the family because, you know, for some of these families, this is the first person that ever graduated college. And that to me is a landmark um, event. And so I do miss that person-to-person that -person interaction. And we tried our best to come up with strategies to celebrate that momentous occasion and not let it go by um, unrecognized. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Rebecca Wright. She's on the Dean's staff. And Rebecca's gonna tell you a little bit about what we did to celebrate commencement for our graduates. Rebecca, go Thank ahead. You. Thank you, Carla. Um, just like Carla said, we did a lot of different things to celebrate our graduates. Um, I'm going to share my screen to kind of highlight as I talk about this experience and how the Herbert College went above and beyond to kind of recreate a memorable experience that, you know, a virtual experience is never really going to replace a real thing, but we're going to try our best to make it the most memorable and be intentional, even though it might be from a distance. Um, so I'm going to share my screen um, to kind of give some examples of that. If I can click news. So one of the ways that the Herbert College did that was, can everyone see my screen? Yes. Okay. So in the ways the Herbert College did that is we sent um, graduation gifts about a month leading up to graduation. Um, we highlighted our students receiving these over social media. Um, as you can see, some of them said it was one of the best packages to open from the Herbert College, along with a note from our dean's office um, and a way to celebrate them. So we did this about a month leading out, um, and then the week of whenever graduation was supposed to take place, um, we sent um, cookies out to each graduate along with a graduation note um, in celebration of those graduates um, saying that we you know we look forward to the time that we can actually cross the state in person um, kind of like Colin mentioned um, having that big hug but you know we want to be as intentional as possible even though we can't do that um, necessarily in person and then the day that commencement um, was to take place the Herbert College um, had an online commencement celebration um, that you can still view today from our website um, and on the website for the virtual commencement you can see videos from um, Kala our faculty um, advisor um, 
speaker and our student speaker, um, along with some different um, people from UTK um, to highlight our graduates' experience. Um, while that was happening, again, we tried to be very intentional and make that day just as exciting, um, even though it was virtual. Ways that we did that were highlighting our students on social media in real time. Um, just as if we were having um, the celebration, even if it was through Zoom, <laughs> um, or um, just kind of shouting out our students um, as they provided us quotes um, and highlighting the departments that they came from in that celebration. Um, and then lastly, not only did we try to lead up to graduation as excitement, celebrate them during the original commencement ceremony, but we also wanted to bring it full circle and highlight our student success, um, even, um, after they graduated and highlighting where they potentially could be. Um, so we did that through the Chronicle, um, highlighting our students after graduation. Um, you can find this through this June Chronicle edition where we've highlighted some of our graduate successes, um, where they plan to go, um, and where we see them going in the future. Ultimately, we're excited to see where um, our Herbert students will go um, and continue to celebrate them, even though that this experience will never replace the real life experience. Um, but we did the best that we could to make it memorable and intentional. Thank you very much, Rebecca. I appreciate that. And then, you know, as we enter the fall semester, you know, we're, we're getting prepared for giving the best that we can because we, we pride ourselves on the quality of education we give our students. And it's both inside and outside of the classroom and the experiential learning underpins everything we do. But how do you do that remotely? So our faculty right now are exploring different means of being able to provide that kind of experience. And some are developing virtual labs. Um, some have put together lab kits that they're gonna be sending home to the students to be able to conduct. And um, some have been consulting with risk management to find out what's the best way they can provide that experience in maybe an outdoor laboratory or an outdoor field experience. So we're looking at all different options to be able to still provide that component that our students value so much because that's the best way they learn. And another thing that we're doing is we're consulting with um, Great River Learning and they develop virtual labs to see if there's some opportunities that we have that we could develop virtual labs that maybe other land-grant universities could use because we're all in the same boat with, you know, facing the challenges of trying to teach students and, and have to be in this online environment. And some of our faculty are thinking about doing a face-to-face -face or a hybrid type of approach. But all in all, I'd say I have so many faculty that are being innovative about how they're approaching fall, it would be hard to select who to feature. But today I'd like to introduce you to both Jennifer Franklin and Molly West and both of them are going to tell you a little bit more about some of the innovative techniques that they're bringing into the classroom that keep our students engaged, even though they might have a little bit of Zoom fatigue. So go ahead. Thank you, Dr. Bill. Um, I think that uh, intentional is the word that really describes the approach that we're trying to take as we think about the fall. We didn't have a lot of time to be intentional um, in the spring semester. And so, members of the Herbert College of Agricultural faculty have come together to form a professional learning community that is centered around um, a book called Online Learning at Its Best. Very low stakes. Think of it as sort of a virtual book club amongst the faculty where we've all selected a course we'll be teaching in the fall 
and are working to redesign that course, integrating best principles of teaching and then how to implement those practices within an online environment. And so I do think that there's a lot of applicability there to other um, branches of, of extension uh, where you're going to be delivering a lot of programming online as well. If you would like to join us, the book is owned by UT Library, so we have access to it digitally. And if you would like to join us, we're using Teams to manage that process and Molly's Teams in a second. Um, just shoot me an email, jennifer.richards, utk.edu. And we'll be happy to add you to the team site and share the meeting invites. We're meeting online every two weeks and we're committing to reading about a chapter a day. Molly, you wanna talk about Teams? Yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, so Teams has allowed us to have a platform that we all can work on. It's wonderful, it's through the Microsoft Office family. So it's, um, it communicates well with things like OneNote and Word and other documents. And so we're able to share resources um, through that, not only the, the chapter books, right, um, the, books, the chapters of the book, um, but also we're able to share maybe any good peer-reviewed articles that help us further elaborate on some of these topics that we're discussing. Um, we found some really cool infographics this last week. We were talking about Bloom's Taxonomy, right? And, and you've got to remember that some of us as um, higher educators don't always know best practices in teaching. We've not always taken um, this foundation and in instructional design and foundation and in, in education courses. So it's been fun to kind of dive in that together. We've been able to share some wonderful YouTube videos on how to create that classroom culture, right, that Herbert really prides itself on um, and create that culture through five easy steps, right, five easy things that you and I can do um, before day one of class. To, to have an open community. We're also using OneNote a lot um, through Teams. This allows us to have um, digital discussions and uh, we can kind of have these pre-done discussions so when we get together as a group, uh, we can talk about them a little bit more in depth. Um, through OneNote, you actually can leave comments to each other. It makes one very large cohesive document uh, for each chapter. And then that kind of is done up in a notebook kind of format. So um, I do actually have one digital uh, discussion platform that we've kind of been playing with recently that we hope to launch in the PLC here shortly. And so I'm going to have Mike Stanley actually share with you all a QR code. So if you will open up a smart um, smartphone to the to the to the photo, the camera option, and look like you're going to take a picture of this QR code, and it should open up um, the URL to called Padlet. He's also put the um, URL in the chat feature. So if you're not familiar with QR code, you also can do um the url and i basically just set this up and um, padlet sets up so you can basically put little tiny um post-its in a sense and so i've listed for you all five reasons why we should use discussions in any type of educational event and they're really great i've got some great resources i will share with um uti so they can kind of get those out to all of us but i i've set up a discussion board for us and i have a question of how do you facilitate discussions in your seminars lectures um, or other programming. And so you can leave any comments on there. We can we can like each other's comments. Um, the way, depending on how you set it up, you can even grade uh, potentially a student's comments. So for y'all that are wanting to kind of build more discussions and learn how to better use discussions within your classes, and um, this is, I think, gonna be a great resource for us potentially as we do a lot more distance programming education. So as we kind of go through this, you all can maybe look at some of those uh, reasons and, and how you facilitate discussions in your programming. So um, if there's no questions, thanks, Dr. Beal.
Thanks so much, uh, Kala and, and uh, all our presenters uh, from the Herbert College of Agriculture. Good to know that our students are in good hands, that, uh, that we're being intentional and that we're using technology uh, to, to really remain uh, offering a great uh, cultural experience for our students. So thank you very much. Let's hear from our other. <laughs> good, good to model a mask as well. Thank you, Carla. Uh, let's hear from our other outstanding college uh, and our other outstanding dean, which would be Dr. Jim Thompson in our College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Thompson? Thanks a lot, Dr. Cross. This is uh, really interesting listening to all these different things that are going around the Institute and uh, really, really does make me really proud. So I think everybody knows that um, you know, in the human healthcare sector, our doctors and nurses have really gone above and beyond the call of duty taking care of people. And uh, I can tell you that exact same work ethic uh, is occurring here at the College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, we have never closed. Uh, we have continued to keep our doors open. Uh, we've been on 24-7 and uh, our field services uh, doctors are still out on the farms with clients taking care of the farms and farmers and the ranchers. And uh, in-house, you know, we've provided curbside service to um, small animal and large animal patients alike. And uh, we've done it in a way that has still protected the people, taken care of the animals, and uh, ensured that our, our, our personnel are still safe here in the hospital. And, you know, certainly we're, we're one of the first colleges to invite the students back on campus. And I can tell you, we're we're experiencing headaches, you know, we're, we're worried every time somebody gets a little bit of illness, you know, if somebody has, you know, um, a, a bad GI movement, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, that could be COVID. What are we going to do now? You know, so it's really been challenging and I'm just so proud of the work effort that our students, our staff and our faculty have continued to give every day and when people go out to self-quarantine, uh, uh, the workload loads up on the people that are still here in the hospital, but they've never, uh, never wavered under their commitment, you know, to take care of animals and people. And I tell you, that just makes me really proud. And I think all of us here at UTIA should be proud of the work that the people are doing. So I also want to highlight just a couple of faculty. You know, we've got lots of different people who are doing lots of different things, and I can't take time to say everything about everybody, but Jackie Whittemore, who's an associate professor in our internal medicine department, um, recently decided that she was going to help veterinarians, and uh, what she's done is she's created a stay-at-home and scope later course that she has put together to help uh, educate residents and uh, veterinarians regarding how to how to do her best skill set, which is um, she's really engaged in um, minimal um, uh, uh, surgical procedures. Okay, and so she's an expert endoscopist, and so this course is free, absolutely free, and more than one thousand two hundred veterinarians across the world have signed up to take Jackie Wittermore's course to learn how to do endoscopy. And I, I'm just really proud of her. Um, she's really gone above and beyond as well. And then secondly, I'm sure you can all recognize how hard it is to teach uh, veterinary medicine to students, but you know, try to teach it while it's online, you know, versus having them here, you know, within your hospital to teach them. 
But we have another faculty member, um, Shelly Olin, who's also an internist, who has put together um, a virtual um, online clinic. And what this does is it uh, engages our veterinary students. Um, the veterinary students uh, either select to be a client or a clinician or a shadow doctor. And client um, students are responsible for taking a look at a list of different diseases, selecting a disease that's of relative interest to them, researching about that disease, and then creating a fictitious patient to present then to the student, who is the clinician in the case. The clinician's responsible then for taking a history from the client, creating a list of potential problems based on that history, conducting a virtual examination of the patient, developing a problem list, coming up with a differential diagnosis for what kind of diseases that patient might be having, and then for presenting the case into the virtual exam or the treatment room area where other students are listening and adding into the case. And it's been just a fantastic um, development tool to help put expertise in our students' hands. And I'm just really proud of Shelly. Uh, she's really done a great job in trying to push forward our educational program and, and this virtual um, examination clinic, I think has been a real winner for the college. And then lastly, you know, we're all uh, social beings and we really like being around one another. And uh, uh, just exactly like UTIA, the College of Veterinary Medicine is kind of a family atmosphere. And we've lost some of that family atmosphere that we, you know, really treasure. Um, people like working together. So we've got a individual who comes from Italy, who says, hey, my house is your house. And Dr. Luca Giori, who's an endocrinologist, decided that he wanted to, he wanted to open his house and invite people in. And so I'd just like Dr. Giori to tell us a little bit about what he did, why he did it, and what he's uh, been able to observe with everything that he's done on his end. So Luca, tell us, uh, tell us what's going on. Thank you, uh, Dean Thompson. So this idea of cooking class didn't come directly from me. It was uh, uh, the Dean of the Academic and Student Affairs, Dr. Claudia Kirk, that um, um, came to me and asked me if I wanted to do that because she knows that I like to cook. And the intent was to give some emotional supports to our students, especially during this uh, first pandem pandemic finals that they were living. I hope it's the last also one. Um, I immediately love this idea of cooking together uh, because uh, as the Dean Thompson was saying, uh, food has a different meaning for Italians. Uh, it's not just a means of supplying the body with nutrients, but it's also a place, a moment where we share things together. So the dinner table is where we create our family bonds, where we develop and strengthen our friendship. And there is this kind of magical synergy uh, and between the, the joys of a conversation in front of a, a meal uh, and uh, sometimes even with a glass of wine, which is also helps in, in conversation. Also in, uh, in a traditional family, uh, Italian family, the mom is responsible for the cooking and the mom is the person who usually takes care of the whole family. Um, for that reason, I wanted to uh, 
you know, uh, be the mom or better the cooking dad who wanted to take care of my students because those are part of my professional family. And I decided to share some of my mom recipes. So what we did, uh, the, a week before the, this cooking event, I was sending out an email to the, the students with a Zoom invitation, the list of the ingredients and detailed, very detailed step-by-step -step recipe with also pictures. And then we were meeting through Zoom um, and we were cooking uh, pretty much together. Um, and the first dish that we did was uh, risotto with be uh, bell peppers. It came up very well. Uh, the participation and the feedback from the students were absolutely positive. I was uh, astonished to see how many people actually participated. And they asked for a second session, and they also asked for tiramisu. So at that point, uh, we decided to open this to the whole CVM family, uh, so also to faculty staff. And we did a second round when I prepare um, uh, tiramisu. And then we also cook some orecchietta with anchovies and a cream of broccoli and, and black olives. So my hope is to keep offering this type of cooking class at least once a month uh, when the students will be back from their summer break. Um, thank you for the opportunity to, to share this with you all. Thanks, Dr. Giori. I, I tell you, I'm just really, really proud of the innovation, you know, that uh, everybody has shown during this uh, dang virus infection. And the sooner we get away from this, the better off, I think. All right, back to you, Dr. Cross. Thanks a lot, Dr. Thompson and Dr. Giori. Uh, I'm signing up next time. That looked like some great food to me. So uh, put me down. I will. Last but certainly not least, uh, let me ask uh, Dr. Hongwei Shin, our Dean for Ag Research, uh, to join us. And uh, joining him, I believe, will be one of our Research and Education Center directors. And they'll be talking just a little bit about uh, one of their new uh, approaches to uh, a traditional activity. Dr. Shin? Thank you, Dr. Cross. Uh, indeed, um, Ag Research continues to fulfill our research missions while trying to do our best to protect the health of our workers. Here's a few factors uh, I wanted to cite. Uh, as of June 1st, uh, we have had uh, 853 field trials and research education centers for the 2020 season. So, to give you a perspective, last year, the entire calendar year, uh, we had um, uh, uh, 966 uh, trials. So. Uh, in the meantime, uh, on campus uh, research, uh, uh, the essential ones continued during the rapid phase. Things uh, phase two, we have had uh, 142 safety health plans for, for conducting uh, research uh, activities. Uh, so. Uh, another uh, noteworthy uh, activity is uh, we have recently received a number of uh, uh, highly competitive grants uh, from USDA, NSF, DOD, and uh, NIH. So people may say, well, uh, those are pre-19 uh, activities. Hey, you know what? In today's age, anytime you get good news, you need to celebrate. So in time, uh, during uh, COVID since early March, we had uh, 216 proposals submitted, um, representing 150 million dollars, and some proposals are for COVID-19 research. 
A couple of uh, programs I think are worth mentioning. Uh, one of them being the research experience for undergraduate. The other one is research extension experience for undergraduate. Uh, one of them being led by Dr. Kim Nguyen uh, on the uh, data science, along with a slate of uh, very competent cohorts of faculty uh, from EEP, uh, EPP. And then the other one is uh, led by Dr. Heather Kelly on uh, integrated pest management uh, being conducted at the Western uh, uh, Education Center. So these experiential learning activities obviously offer great uh, opportunity to turn the agricultural course as well as the research exchange uh, experiences. And also a good pipeline for recruiting high quality graduates. The first two days are a hallmark of ag research in partnership with the UD Extension and to disseminate Due to COVID-19, uh, we're moving a number of them to virtual format. And one of those is the well-known uh, My Notes Today, uh, which had to celebrate the uh, 40th anniversary this year. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Brown, the director of uh, at Milan, who has been spearheading this special endeavor, uh, working side by side with our marketing uh, communication colleagues. So please, I'm going to take to do some Q&A about this awesome virtual event. So Blake, good afternoon. And first question I have for you is why should we have a virtual Friday instead of Canada? Well, thank you, Dr. Shin. Uh, as you know, this event's been held since 1981. And when the idea first came up back in March, the question that I asked our deans was whether it was worth considering doing something different like a virtual field day as opposed to potentially not being able to host any kind of event. Uh, at that time, I estimated that we had probably a 50-50 chance of being able to go forward by the time we were going to have to make a decision around the end of April. And looking back, I think we made the right call. Uh, we'd had some conversations in the past about recording presentations at the field days for future use and such, but it seems that we had a perfect storm of events that led us or maybe forced us to try something different this year, uh, much like many of the other stories that we've heard about today. Excellent. It's somewhat alluded to the next question. That is, uh, what has been the reception from our clientele to the virtual events, Blake? It, it's been very good. Uh, I think even more so the farther we get into this pandemic, when we first met with some of our exhibitors back in early April, they were understanding, but they had the same reservations that we did about not having all of our visitors on site. Uh, earlier this week, we had some industry representatives here at our center looking at plots, and they're planning an event a couple of weeks after ours, and they were asking me questions about how we were structuring the event and looking to us to maybe provide some assistance as they make plans for their own field day. And of course, we'll be happy to assist with them with what we've learned, but Overall, reception's been very good. People seem to be very understanding. Uh, and in fact, some have already stated that they see advantages to going this route, such as being able to get all of their CCA points or pesticide recertification points that we're offering. Uh, and those are gonna be substantial. Beautiful. So then uh, how are the pre-registrations look so far for the event? As of a couple of days ago, we were 
right at 500 pre-registrations. Uh, we typically get about a thousand registrations at the live event, so I think we're doing well, uh, being that we're four weeks out from yesterday before we go live on July 23rd. We're putting the finishing touches on our program right now, and I feel that once that program is posted that the pre-registrations will pick up substantially. Excellent. Uh, then uh, tell folks uh, the lessons you have learned so far for planning uh, virtual education events, if you will. Well, I think first of all, it's taken considerably more effort than I ever anticipated when I first sent this idea up to Morgan Hall. Uh, and it has taken a great big team of folks from across the Institute to make it successful. Our staff here at Milan, they've been busy carrying out our research program and while Leslie Smelser, our administrative assistant here at Milan and I, we've been working on the details of the field day. Uh, we found that for many of the aspects of the field day, even though we have a long history of doing this, once we decided to go virtual, it's kind of like starting over. And so we've had to kind of relearn and redo some things. But we've had lots of people, uh, including folks from your staff uh, that have been invaluable. Uh, the research and extension faculty and staff who are recording the 65 presentations that make up the 16 research tours, they've been phenomenal. Uh, Keith Barber and Tiffany Howard from Advancement have been helping with sponsorships. And of course, none of this would have been possible without the outstanding effort by the entire marketing and communications staff, uh, particularly Ginger Rousey and Charles Denny, who've been responsible for recording all these presentations, but also Lisa Stearns and her entire staff who've been so supportive of this entire event and working behind the scenes to make it possible, uh, along with John Toman, folks in IT. Uh, basically, we couldn't have done it without them and they're carrying a huge load to make this event a success. Couldn't agree more. Uh, finally, uh, how do you see this would impact the uh, 2022 field day, especially on the uh, no-till day or, or, or in, the, in the future in general? Well, I think we're going to have to wait and see how this is received before we make too many decisions. Uh, potentially, I think we have the opportunity to reach more people across the country and perhaps the entire world. Uh, we won't have the constraints of distance and travel. Uh, we won't have to worry about the weather, like is it going to rain or is it going to be too hot? Uh, as we've said, you, you can enjoy this event from your home, your office, or the cab of your truck or your tractor. Anywhere you have access to the internet is good enough to allow you to participate. You know, I don't know if we have the resources to do it both virtually and live in the same year, but we're a research center. This will be a great experiment. Uh, we're going to miss the personal contact with our attendees and hope we get back to that in a couple of years, but we'll seek input and evaluate it after the event and determine how best to proceed over the next 40 years. Blake, uh, thank you so much uh, for your leadership, uh, the team effort. Uh, I certainly want to echo uh, our gratitude uh, to our marketing communication colleagues and friends uh, for their uh, dedicated assistance. Uh, so we, of course, are looking forward to celebrating this uh, Hallmark event. So thank you. And so, Dr. Cross, Lisa, turning back to you. Great. Thanks a lot, Dr. Shin, Dr. Brown. I've got my cap. I'm ready for our virtual field day. So looking forward to it. Uh, appreciate the flexibility and the innovation there and, and great examples uh, from throughout the Institute today. Let me just reiterate that uh, we, we, you know, obviously just picked and chose a few. There are many, many more that we could share and that we'll find opportunities to share and, and make uh, use of, publicize, uh, in the future. So uh, I want to thank everyone who was 
able to share today and, and even more importantly, thank each of you for the work that you're doing that while it may not have been shared today as, as Shelly Barnes mentioned uh, in the chat box, almost every program that was mentioned, uh, the, the presenters made note of how others were a part of that presentation. And it's working together that really uh, makes so many of these happen. So uh, thanks to each of you uh, for what you've done. Keep those success stories coming. We still uh, are collecting them. We're still paying attention to them. If you want to be famous uh, on a future Fireside Chat, uh, send your uh, innovative, uh, successful story and, uh, and we'll feature you. Or maybe Dr. Giori will, uh, will allow you to help him cook the next, uh, next Italian dish. So uh, keep them coming. Lisa? I think he has a complete audience for a cooking class here very shortly. So, so get, get working on that one, Dr. Giori. <laughs> Um, this has been great. Great job, everyone. We really appreciate it. Um, we did have, believe it or not, a couple questions, uh, just a couple clarifying questions uh, from our COVID-19 uh, changes. One was um, just clarifying what you mean by group meetings and the start date of those. Are these meetings that um, are hosted by UTIA and, in, and include the public um, or are they, you know, in person between colleagues? Yes to all of the above. Uh, this is groups of any, any individuals, 50 or less, uh, are now permitted. It could be internal, could be external, and it could be meetings we host. Uh, and certainly, of course, we, we can participate in, in meetings that others host. Uh, we've offered some guidance there about making decisions to uh, attend some of those external meetings as well. So uh, both, both of those uh, are, are a yes. And then the other question was clarification on international travel. Uh, this person had heard that the board made a decision that uh, no international travel should be happening. Not, uh, I'd have to go back and look in the board notes. Uh, and I, I participated in the board meeting, but uh, that may have been in the COVID-19 directives that were published. However, I, I do know that UT system uh, has uh, uh, continued to restrict and prohibit international travel as as has UT Knoxville and as we will as well and actually our guidelines we we went ahead and revised those to be in alignment with UT Knoxville as well to say that international travel uh, will not be permitted through September 30th at this point to some extent our guidance there is is almost uh, inconsequential because really and truly it's it's not possible to travel internationally to most destinations right now uh, either because there's no air service being provided or because government, restrict, uh, government restrictions are in place. But we know for planning purposes, uh, folks want to know what, what's the future hold. And at this point, we've extended the, uh, the restrictions on international travel through September 30th. Also recognize there may be some really, really critical function taking place between now and then. That, that is uh, you know, very essential. And so we, we uh, will allow a request for exceptions to that uh, on an individual basis as well. And then related to um, meetings, this person's asking if all buildings are still close to the public with these changes or are, they, are some of them opening or any opening? And I think we're probably all over the board there. Our extension offices are still in a phased approach. Our research and education centers, I believe, are still secure for the most part uh, to, to outside visitors. And here on campus, we're, we're still uh, secure uh, in terms of locked buildings. However, uh, there are provisions for visitors and guests. And, and basically, what we're 
indicating is that for those who uh, want to visit or for those who we're inviting to be guests, uh, they need to follow all the same health protocols, health procedures that the rest of us are following. So, you know, we are a public agency. We're here to serve the public, uh, but we need to do so uh, safely. And we're trying to hit the right balance there between uh, being accessible, but also being safe. Uh, I believe uh, within the next few weeks, probably the uh, that restriction will be looked at very closely. And my guess is somewhere around the end of July, we'll look at uh, probably reopening, if you will, uh, all of our buildings, institute and university-wide. Great. Well, Tim, that's it. So do you have any uh, closing, any closing comments? <laughs> well, really, really uh, excited about what was shared today. And it reiterates to me how hard everyone's working and how effective they're working. And, and really continuing to serve folks uh, from throughout the Institute. So thank you uh, to all of you and thanks especially to our presenters. Patty McDaniels did a great job pulling all this together today. Uh, Patty, thanks for your help. I really appreciate our deans, faculty and staff for, for participating today. Thanks to each of you for joining us. As usual, I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, we're, we're not gonna have a fireside chat next week uh, because of the uh, 4th of July holiday. So I'll wish you uh, uh, a great week and a great uh, holiday next weekend as well. Take care, stay healthy, and we'll hope to see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend.